Hello and welcome to another in a series of podcasts from Sadie Records. I'm Steve Robinson, and every time Sadie comes out with a new release, we do a podcast and interview the principals on the particular CD. For this one, we have all the principals with us. This is an album called Liquid Melancholy, Clarinet Music of James M. Stevenson, and it features the clarinet virtuosity of John Brucier, a member of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, the music of James Stevenson, and it was produced by Jim Ginsburg, the president of Sadie Records, and all three gentlemen are with me in the studio. Welcome, gentlemen. Hi. Thanks. Good morning. Great to be here. How did this collaboration come about, John? Well, it came about when... Alan Dennis, my very good friend and colleague who's the founder of Midwest Young Artists Conservatory, came to me and said, would you like to play a new clarinet concerto? I said, sure. And I said, who's it by? He says it's by Jim Stevenson. I said, hmm, I don't know Jim, but I'd be happy to meet him. So he set up a meeting, and the rest is history. Jim, you're a Chicago-based composer. You are a full-time composer. You just sit around all day and write music, and that's it. And that puts you in a very rare kind of class for a classical composer. Yeah, I guess so. It's and just all accidental. I used to be in an orchestra <laughs> myself as a trumpet player and then got this little bug to start writing music, some of which is represented on this CD, very early compositions of mine. And it all just dovetailed from there. And, yeah, exactly as you said, I literally sit at my desk writing music all day. Now, you met uh, John Broussier, as John just said, but you knew about him. Oh, of course. Yeah, who doesn't? (laughs) (laughs) I grew up in Chicago listening to this orchestra, so. He's been a member of the Chicago Symphony for 41 years. He doesn't look it, but Schulte (laughs) picked you when you were six. You were a prodigy. That's right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 1977. I still remember the day. Now, there are six pieces on this album. Four of them are world premieres, and the first one is actually the title of the album. It's a piece called Liquid Melancholy, a very provocative kind of title. It's in four movements. The first movement isn't very melancholic, so tell us a little (laughs) bit about the title and, and Jim and how this was conceived and when you wrote it. Well, with much of my music, I find myself inspired by a title or by a situation or some sort of scenario that either pops into my mind or is directly presented to me by somebody else. And in this case, I was reading Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. My oldest daughter at the time, it was her assignment for class, and I thought I'd be a good dad and and try to read it along with her. Well, I eventually read the whole book, but I remember getting probably about a third of the way into the book, and the phrase liquid melancholy was mentioned by Ray Bradbury, and I said to myself, that is a title for the piece I would be working on shortly, which was this clarinet concerto. And in this case, I was struck by the liquid aspect, especially with clarinets. We all know how they can play so fluidly, and as a trumpet player, I always wished I could do that and would try to emulate that. But here I was writing a clarinet concerto, so I thought, you know, there was opportunity musically with that. And then the melancholy aspect uh, certainly comes in the second movement more than any other. I think every composer looks for an opportunity to challenge themselves with something maybe they haven't done so much of at that point in their career. And so with the second movement of this clarinet concerto, I felt a challenge to write something that was slow and very melancholic through and throughout. So that is how this piece came to be. I like the reference at the very beginning of the piece. The spikiness reminds me of the mechanical dog. That's right in the Fahrenheit 451. So when Jim disavows any further connection to Fahrenheit 451, but when I started doing this piece, I said, this is obviously the mechanical dog at the very Go sniffing out all those books to burn. I can go with that. I'll change the title, too, if you want. (laughs) (laughs) Mechanical dog. I just love that image, too. Well, let's listen to two excerpts from this four-movement piece. We'll listen to a bit of the first movement, the liquid part, of Mark Confuoco, and the second movement, Adagio Lamentoso. But before we do, Jim, you're a resident of Lake Forest? Correct. And this is performed by the orchestra uh, in Lake Forest called the Lake Forest Symphony. You're the composer in residence. So it must be gratifying to have a piece played by your hometown band. Yeah, I've had a relationship with them now for almost eight years, I think, and they've played a piece or two of mine every year. So I've really gotten to know the musicians, and they've gotten to put up with me better and better, or (laughs) however you want to put that. No, they they seem to enjoy it. So it's become a really nice uh, relationship. And with Vladimir, the conductor, uh, he continues 
to uh, reach out to me and say, what can we do next year, which is fantastic. And then obviously yes. we get to do collaborations such as this one, uh, which is taking it all to a new level, having it recorded, and the orchestra really stepped, I, I don't want to say stepped up, they already did it, but this was sort of a new venture for them to put the red light on, and I just think the whole result has been fantastic. Jim Ginsburg, you recorded kind of a hometown orchestra. It's your first recording with Lake Forest, I think. Yes, but it is one of two albums coming out with them this year. We also have an album coming out in the fall called Sisters in Song, starring sopranos Nicole Cabell and Allison Cambridge, also with Vladimir Kalinovich and the Lake Forest Symphony. And this is something the label's been getting into more and more, is working with some of these local orchestras. We're also right now working on an album with harpsichordist Jory Vinegar and the Chicago Philharmonic for release next year. It used to be in America that there were five great orchestras and the rest you could forget about. <laughs> and that is no longer the case, hasn't been for decades. And so you have orchestras all over the country that are wonderful. And this is one of them. It's a small town. I happen to know the orchestra's truth in advertising. I'm on the board. The budget's under a million, and yet the sound is, is wonderful. Well, it's special for me because I've known many of these musicians that play in the Lake Forest Symphony ever since I've been in Chicago. So many of them have been my colleagues in freelance settings for over 40 years. And it was really gratifying to see so many of them in the orchestra and to make this recording with them. And I should note, it's great to add these ensembles to the orchestras already on the Sadie roster, including the Chicago Sinfonietta and the Grand Park Orchestra. And we also happen to have two with John's band, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. <laughs> Well, let's listen now to an excerpt from the Liquid Melancholy Concerto for Clarinet and Orchestra by Jim Stevenson, and the conductor is Vladimir Kolenovich. It's the Lake Forest Symphony. We'll hear an excerpt from the first movement, Mark Confuoco, and the second movement, Mark Adagio Lamentoso. Thank you. 
And we've just heard excerpts from the Concerto for Clarinet and Orchestra by Jim Stevenson. It's a piece called Liquid Melancholy, and we heard an excerpt from the first and then the second movement, illustrating both the liquid and the melancholy. And this is a world premiere recording featuring Vladimir Kalinovich, the conductor of the Lake Forest Symphony, and the soloist was none other than John Bruce Yeh. How did this commission come about? Well, Alan Dennis, who was the founder of Midwest Young Artists Conservatory, a youth training orchestra and complete pre-college musical program that makes their home in Fort Sheridan, Illinois, has been a mentor of mine for almost 20 years now. As such, I've been on the faculty of MYA, and he made this suggestion to me that we would join a consortium of youth orchestras that was commissioning a clarinet concerto from Jim Stevenson, and replied, of course, I would love to meet Jim Stevenson. And we had lunch over at Bob's Deli one day up in the Highland Park, and we hit it off right away. We talked about the way this piece was going to be premiered by three different orchestras, including MYAC, Midwest Young Artists Conservatory, and then one orchestra in Portland, Oregon, and then an orchestra in Cleveland, all youth orchestras, and played by professional first-class clarinet soloists, David Chiffrin and Daniel Gilbert, my very mm -hmm. good friends and colleagues. And so I would say, well, I'd be happy to join that group. It sounds like I would be in good company. And so when the piece came out, it was delightful to play. And certainly uh, Jim is so skilled at composing that it sounded good even with a youth orchestra. And when you play it in different settings with different types of orchestras, I played it with a, a university orchestra at the Chicago College of Performing Arts where I teach at Roosevelt University. You get more detail with an orchestra like that. And then I played it with professional orchestras like the Lake Forest Symphony. And at each level, there is an additional challenge because the piece can sound good at all the different levels. And I think we have represented this composition very well on this particular recording, and I hope you all like it. <laughs> <laughs> I should add, John, do you remember the the situation under which you premiered it with Midwest Young Artists? You oh, yes. I was flying in from a European tour the night before. Russia, I think. Oh, yes. It was a, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> this goes back to my history with Midwest Young Artists. The first time I encountered them was back in 2000. And Dr. Dennis asked me to play a concerto with the orchestra. And it turned out to be the Corleano Clarinet Concerto, which is arguably one of the most difficult pieces ever written for clarinet, let alone for orchestra. And he, when he asked me, would you like to play a concerto with us? And I said, sure. And at that point, I hadn't met Dr. Dennis. I only knew of them because one of my students played in the MYA orchestra, and I'd heard of him, and she said, oh, he was so great. And I said, okay, I'll play a concerto with you. And he said, um, how'd you like to do the Copeland concerto? So I said, okay, that's fine. It's a little bit difficult. Strings are very tricky and transparent. He said, I think we can do it. He said, let's do another concerto also. And I said, well, okay, <laughs> you know, how about WC or the Mozart or the or Weber concerto? He said, I'd like to do something American. At this point, I was, well, this is a youth orchestra. I'm just going to throw this out. And I said, well, we could take a look at the Corleano concerto. And I was kind of joking. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, do you have the score? And I said, yeah. So let me take a look at it. And so I sent him the score, and a week later, he called me back, and he says, John, I think we can do the Corleano and the Copeland. And I said, okay. And it turned out that we scheduled the concert literally the day after I returned from a European tour. It was a three-week European tour, and I said, this is the only day that I can make it fit amongst your concert dates. So he said, let's just do it. And I said, okay, well, you're going to probably have to rehearse the orchestra parts without me during the time when I'm on tour. And we had a few rehearsals of the Corleano, and it was sort of, okay, I hope we can get through this. So I came back, and I remember the night before, I just must have slept for about 20 hours. And then I didn't know whether it was day or night. I went in, I played the Copeland Concerto, played the Corleano Concerto, 
and I remember it going very well. And the concertmaster, by the way, of the MOA orchestra at the time was Gina DiBella, who's a member of the Chicago Symphony uh, violin section now. It, It was just almost superhuman accomplishment for this youth orchestra to play the Corleano and the Copeland Concerti in one program. This was in 2000, so 10 years later, when we commissioned Jim to do Liquid Melancholy, the only date that happened to work out in their schedule, because they get their dates in advance, was also the day after returning from this time a Russian tour with Maestro Muti. And I said, hey, we did it once before. Maybe we can push our luck and schedule on this day. And it turned out to be a big success, I think. Well, they only had to do one concerto that time. So. That's, that's right. <laughs> well, let's move on to a second piece on this uh, album. And we're talking with uh, John Bruchier. That was John, uh, clarinetist with the Chicago Symphony and also with the Chicago Pro Musica and an artist who plays all over the world and all over Chicago. And that's Jim Stevenson, the composer. And this next piece is called Colors. Now, this is not a world premiere. When did you write this, Jim? Uh, Colors is actually one of my very first compositions. Oh. It was back when I was playing trumpet with the Naples Philharmonic, and I had gotten this little itch to start composing, and I just sat down and I wrote this four-movement suite that involves clarinet and oboe, along with a string quartet, which provided me some extra colors to work with musically. And uh, it was literally just uh, writing music for the heck of it at that point. So we're, we're literally talking about, I think, 1997 or so, which... So this is uh, early Stevenson from early the, Stevenson. The, the, the first Precisely. period. Mm-hmm. This piece is as old as my oldest daughter. I just mm-hmm. thought of that. Yeah. <laughs> early Stevenson. It's yeah. in four movements. Let's see if I can pronounce the, uh, the names of them. Uh, red, <laughs> blue, green, and white. <laughs> Nicely done. Very good. Thank you very much. Excellent. Yeah, very this good, green happens to be my youngest daughter's favorite piece on this album. Is that right? Every time we play, and she's heard the whole album through time after time after time at home and uh, in the car. Every time green comes up, I like that one. Let's play that one again. It really has a wonderful rustic feel to it. Yes. So we'll hear it in its entirety. It's called Green. Colors is actually scored for... A string quartet, members of the Chicago Pro Musica, and oboe, Alex Klein, and clarinet, obviously. Kind of an unusual combination, Jim. Yeah, I think, if I remember correctly, we're going back 20 years now. The cellist in the string quartet had recently begun dating the oboe player oh. in our orchestra. See how these Lovely. things work over time? You know. Yeah, we were just in Naples, by the way, and it is beautifully green there, too. We had a great time in Naples. Very profound way some of these things happen in exactly. music. Exactly, yeah. yes. Uh, <laughs> So it's scored, again, for oboe and string quartet, and the string players are members of your group, John. You founded it uh, not long after you joined the symphony, the Chicago Pro Musica. Yes. And they're all members of the Chicago Symphony. Yes, and they are So Young Bay and Cornelius Chu violins, Danny Lai viola, and Daniel Katz cello, joined by the very wonderful Alex Klein oboe. Yes, indeed. So let's listen to the complete movement. It's the third movement. It's titled Green, and it's from the composition Colors by Jim Stevenson. Thank you. 
We've just heard a movement from a piece called Colors. It's in four movements, and they are titled Red, Blue, Green, and White, and we heard the movement green in its entirety, performed by members of Chicago Pro Musica with Alex Klein and the clarinetist is John Bruchier. And this is an album entitled Liquid Melancholy. At the beginning of this podcast, we heard two movements from the title piece, and that was with the Lake Forest Symphony. This is Colors, and we heard one movement, Green. So, uh, Jim, this is an early Stevenson piece from your early period. Tell us just a bit about the character of the other movements, which would be red, blue, and white. (laughs) Sure. Well, I think it's fair to just mention again that this was a a composer at that point in his, well, not even a career yet, but just trying to uh, see what he could come up with with various uh, inspiration. And so, you know, maybe some of the inspirations may be less profound. You know, with red, to me, it was angry, of course, and then also a sunset color. So you get both of those uh, sensibilities within the piece. But also I was influenced by composers of the red regime, if Mm -hmm. you will. So you'll hear some Shostakovich or Stravinsky in there Mm -hmm. as well. I was a young composer, very uh, heavily influenced by what I was hearing while playing in the orchestra those days. And uh, then we go on to blue, and it's what you might expect. It's very bluesy, uh, but I, I saw a challenge in writing a bluesy movement for an instrumentation that wouldn't normally play the blues, you know, a string quartet. and Anybody you know, can play the blues. Well, that, and that's <laughs> proven on the CD. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Green, uh, what was fun about Green was it's sort of an Irish uh, jig, right. if you will. I remember asking people, do you see this as a light green or a forest green or what sort of green <laughs> uh, impression do you get from this? And I got all sorts of different answers, which I thought was kind of cool that people would have different impressions. And then White. I get symbolism wherever I can find it, and so it's, of course, in C major because those are all the white keys on the Mm -hmm. piano. But I also imagined at the beginning that this happened often in Florida where I was living at the time where you throw open the blinds of your window and the the sunshine just hits you in the face, just this bright light. And so the piece opens with this flurry of and flash of Mm -hmm. what at least was my impressions of a bright light hitting you in the face. Well, for a first composition, uh, I think it showed a lot of promise because <laughs> uh, it's a very beautiful piece and uh, very sophisticated. You were a trumpeter, but did you study composing? Not officially. My answer to that usually is that, you know, I had the classes when I went to Interlochen Arts Academy and when I went mm-hmm. to New England Conservatory. I had the classes that all performance majors might be forced to take. You know, that's how you look at it when you're in college. I sat in an orchestra since the age of 10 and then professionally for 17 years. And so literally every week I was getting a composition lesson from the great composers that were on my music stand. Especially when I became officially a composer, if you will, I listened more intently to what these composers were doing. You know, why did my colleagues kind of sit up in their chairs when they were playing certain pieces? Or why did you get a sense from the audience of whether they were enjoying what they were hearing or whether they were flipping through the program or candy wrappers or whatever. You just sort of take notice of that when you're actually thinking of composing for a living or do, taking it more seriously. So this next piece we could call Late Stevenson because it was written in 2015, and it's called Last mm-hmm. Chance, and we should spell that. That's C-H-A-N-T-S, mm-hmm. and you love puns. So tell us about Last Chance. Yes, I do love puns. Forgive me. You know, so much of our music comes from people we've known in our previous lives or from a younger age. And I had met this fabulous viola player at a conducting institute, actually, in 2003, and he was there as part of the ensemble that played for all the conductors. And his name is Tim Christie. And he had subsequently started a music festival out in Walla Walla, Washington, and invited me to write a piece for that festival in 2015, as you said. He asked me for a title before I actually wrote the piece. This has started to happen more and more. Hmm. When people need to advertise, they ask the composer for a title before we've even thought about the music. It's not just called Untitled by Jim Stevenson. (laughs) Right, or To Be Announced or (laughs) whatever. (laughs) Yeah, I still remember it. I was driving through an intersection in Lake Forest where I live, and somebody, it might have even been WFMT, I don't know, somebody said, last chance on the radio. (laughs) And I said, hey, wait a minute. There's opportunity there in music. And so... The music does reflect chanting. There's a lot of wailing and uh, somewhat Eastern or medieval sounding, sounding, I should emphasize that, music in there. But also it represents, there's some energy in the music that portrays maybe, you know, a lot of, this might be our last chance to get this music out or so there's this sort of 
momentum or angst underlying the dance music that just represents, hey, let's say what we have to say now because this might be our last chance. (laughs) Well, let's listen now to an excerpt from Last Chance, and it features uh, members of Chicago Pro Musica, Patrick Godin Piano, Soyoung Bay Violin, Danny Lai Viola, Daniel Katz Cello, and John Bouchier Clarinet. just heard an excerpt from a piece called Last Chance by Jim Stevenson with members of Chicago Pro Musica and the featured artist on this new CD recording, John Broussier. And the album is called Liquid Melancholy, Clarinet Music of James Stevenson. And we have with us in the studio the clarinetist John Broussier, the composer Jim Stevenson, and the producer Jim Ginsberg. So this featured your group, a John that you founded many years ago called Chicago Pro Musica. What inspired the creation of this group? In 1979, I was just in the Chicago Symphony for a couple of years, and at the time, and they still have a chamber music series that requests members of the orchestra to form groups and 
perform on this series. Having come recently from Juilliard, where I had a group called the New York New Music Ensemble, I wanted to form a Chicago New Music Ensemble. So we got together several members of the orchestra, and we wanted to do Pierrot Lunaire of Schoenberg. And I asked around to find who would be a pianist to perform a Pierrot, and everybody said Easley Blackwood, who was the composition professor at the University of Chicago at the time, and who knew Pierrot Lunaire inside out. From then, Easley and I formed a working relationship that lasted 20 years. Including a couple recordings on Sadie Records. Indeed. And we did Piero Lunaire and a couple of other modern pieces, music by Charles Warrenen and some other pieces that were really 20th century music. The following year, we decided the same people would like to do something classical. And we did the Brahms and Rager clarinet quintets. And we couldn't really call it Chicago New Music Ensemble. Brahms and Rager weren't really new music. So somebody in the marketing department of the Chicago Symphony, Evelyn Miney was her name, she came up with the name Chicago Pro Musica. And it stuck. And so I said, okay, great. We'll just be Chicago Pro Musica and just play all kinds of music. New music, old music, in-between music, brand new music. We'll commission pieces. And that has become the group that it is today. And in 1985, the Recording Academy awarded us the Grammy for Best New Classical Artist because during that year, the recordings that we made at Medina Temple of The Soldier's Tale and Facade of Walton were first released, and we were fortunate enough to get the Grammy Award. And since that year, 1985, that Grammy Award has never been given, the Best New Classical Artist category. So we were the only ones to ever receive that award. It doesn't really mean anything except for the fact that we're the only ones to ever receive that award. means a lot, actually. <laughs> okay. Well, we've every year had different projects. Last year, our big project was recording the chamber music of Jim Stevenson. And in 2014, our big project was premiering The Devil's Tale of Jim Stevenson. So, Which is an, an accompaniment to the Stravinsky, right? That's correct. The Devil's Tale is actually a sequel to Stravinsky's The Soldier's Tale. And we did both of them on an evening-long performance at the Ravinia Festival with the inimitable Hershey Felder as the actor-narrator. It was a great experience to get together with Jim and work with members of Chicago Pro Musica, and this is our mission, is to create new music and also to play the classics. Along the way, other members of Chicago Symphony have joined Chicago Pro Musica, and Patrick Godin, who is our keyboard player now since Mary Sauer has retired from the Chicago Symphony of, after almost 60 years as our principal keyboard player. Her great student, Patrick Godin, who actually went to school at DePaul with my wife, Teresa, has been our collaborator, and we've done a lot of chamber music, and I've done a lot of recitals with Patrick. Well, as fate would have it, uh, Patrick is uh, featured with you on the next piece we're going to excerpt. Indeed. It's called Fantasy. Jim, it was originally written for your instrument, trumpet, but you've arranged it for a clarinet, and this is a world premiere of this arrangement. Yes, a world premiere recording of this arrangement. Yeah, it was originally written for a good friend of mine who's a trumpet player in the Montreal Symphony. He wanted to have a piece that would uh, recognize the talent of Timothy Dokshitzer, a famous Russian trumpet player who had recently passed away and he wanted a piece that would be an homage to Timothy Dokshitzer, who I knew, not personally, but I knew his playing very well. And so the music is retro in a very romantic style because that is how Timothy Dokshitzer loved to play with this really lovely vibrato and old cornet solos and things like that. And so the music is almost early 20th century sounding, I would say, mm -hmm. and that's very much on purpose. I, whenever I write, I always go to the theme of what I'm writing about. I don't try to force a Jim Stevenson sound onto a piece. Instead, I let the theme take the music to where I feel it needs to go. 
And so this is almost like an old cornet solo with little waltzes and little cadenzas in there, but in this case played by a clarinet instead of a trumpet. And it lies so well for the clarinet, and I just love playing this music. It brings joy to me to hear the music when I play it. It lies so well for the clarinet that it could easily have been written directly for the clarinet and piano. I have to put in a little plug here for your daughter's video that uses the opening minute of the piece. Indeed, right. My daughter, Malier, who's a famed food blogger and author, has a little one-minute video of her making apple pie. And she called me one day and she goes, Dad, do you have some music I can use for my apple pie video? It just needs to be one minute. And at the time, we just recorded this whole album. And I said, I think I have something that might fit. And it does absolutely perfectly. I don't know how, but she had done the video and then applied the music to it. And all the points where she cuts the crust and she puts the apples in all line up exactly with the points in the music. <laughs> it's absolutely That's what you had in uncount. mind, Jim, when you wrote this, right? Absolutely. Making apple pie. <laughs> I was just trying to write sweet music. That's all. It is definitely <laughs> Well, let's listen to an excerpt from the Apple Pie Fantasy of <laughs> Jim Stevenson. I should have written in, in a mode. Fantasy a mode. Perfect. Now, an excerpt from Fantasy by Jim Stevenson, featuring John Bruchier, and he's accompanied by Patrick Godin. just heard an excerpt from a piece called Fantasy for clarinet and piano. Uh, the clarinetist was John Broutier, the pianist Patrick Godin, and this is from an album called Liquid Melancholy, Clarinet Music by James M. Stevenson, and it's the most recent CD release on the CD label. And by the way, you can get any album by going to cdrecords.org, and that's C-E-D-I-L-L-E, cdrecords.org, a wonderful uh, label that is based in Chicago. It's the only label in the world that is devoted to the music and musicians of one city, and that is Chicago. It was founded by 
Jim Ginsburg, who's with us right now. And a big focus of the label is not only performing musicians, but Chicago composers as well. So it's really wonderful to add Jim to our increasing roster of wonderful Chicago composers. So this brings together both because, as you just said, all the musicians are based here, and so is the composer. So what's different about making a recording when that darn composer is in the room? (laughs) Well, it depends on who the composer is. But in this particular case, it's a comfort to have the composer in the room because I am happy to get any feedback from anybody. But feedback from the composer of a particular piece that you're playing at that particular time is so valuable and unique. It was great because Jim had ideas that I wouldn't necessarily have thought of about how to execute certain parts of the music. Of course, he's so diplomatic and so helpful that everything seemed to raise our level of performance. and Therefore, it becomes definitive because when the composer is there, you can go right to the source and right to what he's actually thinking and feeling about the music. And then to have that input, in Jim Stevenson's case, to have his input was invaluable. And I would not have wanted to do this album without his constant collaboration from the very beginning throughout the whole process. Have you ever said to a composer, or or Jim in particular, either in the recording or before, you know, this passage is a little awkward. Do you think? Yeah, I have. And certain composers, actually with Jim... I've mentioned it, and he's made suggestions and that have been spot on and have enabled me to wrap my head around and actually begin to give what he had in mind. One of the specific spots that I remember is in Last Chance, doing the whales, and not something that I'm used to doing. It's sort of like Rhapsody in Blue in reverse, <laughs> wailing from the... T- And Rhapsody in Blue is my scariest solo, so I'm not really used to sliding around on the instrument so much, but some of the suggestions that Jim gave were really so helpful that they enabled me to do something that I hadn't been able to do before. Some composers might say, okay, well, then change it. Do something different. Jim, on the other hand, said, try it this way, and it'll be what I had in mind, and I think it all worked out great. Agreed. I think, uh, if I remember correctly, I basically said, just don't worry about the rhythm of the wailing so much. Just It's more of an effect. It's right. It's more uh-huh. of just, just get from here to there. Don't worry about landing at a certain that, spot. That freed me up, yeah. and it was just the right thing to say. So in addition to Jim being a wonderful composer and a, a wonderful human being, he is a performing musician, so he really understands what the performers are going through at the time of the recording. And I think to have somebody sympathetic like that, along with Jim Ginsburg, the two Jims at the helm was really a fantastic, uplifting experience for all of us on this recording, for Chicago Pro Musica, for me in particular. And I think it was something that I'll cherish forever, this experience. I should put in a plug for Sadie's engineer, Bill Malone, um, as well as also for Mary Mazurik, who was the engineer specifically for the concerto, because I think they did a great job of capturing your sound. Absolutely. I was uh, happy to have their input and their suggestions. And to hear the replay immediately, this is a top-notch operation, and I think we have hopefully produced a top-notch product. There are six recordings on this album. Uh, Four of them are world premieres, but we're going to hear a piece called Etude Caprice for clarinet and piano. John, you have used the word terror to describe uh, this piece. Explain that, please. Well, it is two minutes of terror for the clarinet player, and I don't think Jim necessarily had that in mind when he composed it, but it goes by pretty fast, and you need to get a big breath at the beginning to be able to keep up. And Maybe for some clarinet players it wouldn't be terrifying, but for me, to get through it perfectly is a real challenge. So that's why I always say it's two minutes of terror, but it's a wonderful piece. I totally love it, and I've played it unaccompanied as well. There is an unaccompanied version, and I've played it as an encore to Liquid Melancholy, 
just by myself, an unaccompanied version. And by the time Liquid Melancholy is over, I've got such adrenaline going that two minutes of terror isn't as terrible. Jim, tell us a bit about this piece and how it came about. Well, I think of note is that this originally was to be just an etude. The piano accompaniment was added later. And I remember distinctly, we had just gotten a new clarinetist in our orchestra in Naples when I was there. Ivan Garcia? I don't know if you know Mm. Ivan. I don't know. He lives in Spain, plays in Spain. Mm. Uh, He had just joined. I was just beginning composing at that point, and I literally was out riding a bike, uh, Mm. which I used to do a lot of back then. And so the tempo of this piece is based on the pedaling that I was doing at that You can go pretty fast in Naples. It's pretty flat. I'm sorry I wasn't going uphill for (laughs) clarinetist's sake. (laughs) Thanks, Not um, many hills. So literally, it's a piece that has no other plan other than to be an etude. So there are a lot of whole tone scales and chromatic scales and just an exercise in what I assumed might be a good thing for clarinetists to learn how to master. I'm not a clarinetist, but I just thought I'd have a go at it. And It is true. It, it, these things are all great for the clarinetist to master. And uh, the challenge of it is actually the reward of getting through it. Well, let's listen to Two Minutes of Terror by Jim. No, it's uh, <laughs> Etude Caprice by Jim Stevenson. This is early Stevenson from 1997 and is performed by our guest, John Broussier, who's featured on this entire album, and he's joined on this piece by pianist Patrick Godin. <laughs> That was a performance of Etude Caprice by Jim Stevenson, and we heard the whole piece, performed by John Broussier, and the pianist was Patrick Godin, and it's part of this new CD release called Liquid Melancholy, Clarinet Music of Jim Stevenson. Jim, the works on this album cover a span of almost 20 years, from 1997 to 2015. How has your compositional style changed over the years? That's a tough one to answer, I have to confess. The one thing that has stayed constant, and I think I've made this clear in the talks we've been having, the desire to compose music for a certain subject or for very direct inspiration, uh, going to where the story is, has always been there since the time I started. I will say that, and I'm sure this is true of almost every composer, my older music, early Stevenson, sounds more innocent and perhaps more optimistic because I was just doing it for fun. I was a kid. I had a different job. I was performing in the orchestra. So maybe I'm projecting my own personal memories onto it, but it just seemed music was like, oh, let's just have fun and give this a try. 
And now as a composer who has four children to raise and luckily knock on wood, constant <laughs> deadlines to meet, I do feel a certain sense of my music today. I'm digging deeper and I want it to have more substance and more meaning, but there's always that angst of making sure I get it done at the same time. Now, Jim, your music is unabashedly tonal, so you really can't be called an avant-garde composer. No. I'm wondering whether you're willing to admit in public, right here on this podcast, <laughs> that plead guilty of just sitting around writing beautiful music that people really love to listen to. Is that bad? <laughs> um, Depends I, what, on who you ask. I, but what I'd like to I say, I, this goes to what and who loved and people love to play. Right. Yeah, in fact, I wanted to raise that your rise as a composer is from not being a composer at all, not going through a lot of the formal training, not having mentors to push your career, and yet you've very quickly established yourself to the point where you could be a full-time composer, whereas even some of the best composers with the best pedigrees need to hold a teaching job to keep things together. To what do you attribute your amazingly rapid rise as a composer? Incredible talent. Well, <laughs> if, if, I could, great. if I could piggyback of what John was saying a little bit. So I started out as a performing musician, and then I became a composer as a hobby, and then made the switch to full-time composing 10 years ago, and now I'm also a little bit of a conductor here and there. Don't get mad at me, John. Mm, no, no, but um, all of these things totally inform the way I write music. I remember what it's like to see something on my music stand that I have to master this and nobody's going to care, you know, that sort of thing. Or, like I said earlier, the feeling in the audience or the feeling amongst my colleagues. Or sitting in an audience myself listening to music being played or listening to my music being played and now conducting scores and knowing what I like to see and how I want the music to flow. All of this informs, at least in my mind, how I want to be represented as a composer. I want the performing musicians first and foremost to feel like the practicing and, and all the hard work is worth it. There could be no worse feeling as a composer to feel like the person who's putting their lives on the line front and center on stage to play this music and you get the sense that they just didn't have fun doing it, that would be the worst feeling ever. So it's my goal. Every single note I write, I think about what it's like to perform it or what it's like to be in the audience. I literally envision being in a concert hall and seeing a conductor come on stage, watching them give a downbeat, and what I'm expecting as an audience member from that moment forward. I think about that as I'm writing. And that's all for better or for worse. I mean, history will judge whether that's the right way to go, but that's how I do it. I think you've achieved your goal in spades. It has been a delight to play every note of your music. Every piece that I've been involved in of music by Jim Stevenson has just been uh, satisfying and also provocative because it inspires the musician to dig deeper into the music and to find more of the story and how to tell it. And I will also say in, in that composing process, you know, yes, it's also for the audience performers, whatever, but if someone is willing to dig deeper, I do make sure that there is substance to the music so that it continues to reveal itself for whoever wants to seek it out. There's hopefully some depth to the music and layers that are rewarding to discover. Precisely. Well, we have one more excerpt to go, and this is actually from the last piece on the CD, and it's the longest piece. It's the Sonata for Clarinet and Piano. It's a piece in four movements, and we're going to hear the third movement. Tell us a bit about this piece, Jim. It's the longest piece, and it's also late Stevenson. This was written in 2015. Correct. Let's call it mid-Stevenson. Mid-Stevenson. <laughs> well, let's call at this point recent Stevenson. <laughs> well, I like recent better, yes. yes. <laughs> I just love everything about how this piece came to be. It involves John, of course. It involves a community of clarinetists, and it involves actually my old high school, Interlochen. And I think I contacted you, John, and said, how yes. about a clarinet sonata project? And I've been doing, and still do, a few of these kind of community co-commission-based pieces where I reach out to any and all instrumentalists of a certain category and say, hey, how would you all like to get together and write a new piece? Or I would write a new piece and you all can be a part of it. I call them micro-commissions. I don't mm -hmm. know if that's something I came up with, but done a few of them. And, and so this one involved John as the lead member of a consortium that involved, I think, 25 or mm -hmm. so clarinetists, all of whom would receive the piece and a couple of others in thanks for taking part in this project. 
And what happened, and John, feel free to correct me, but I think we planned on maybe a spring completion yes. of this piece. It was supposed to be in the spring of 2016. Yes, and then you, you wrote to me or called me and said, uh, Jim, I'm actually doing a recital at Interlochen. Mm-hmm. Any chance you might finish the piece by October or November or something like that? Right. Well, the recital in Interlochen was scheduled for November 18th in 2015. And this was during the late summer that we were talking about this, and this invitation came in, and I said, Interlochen. That's where Jim Stevenson went and spent a lot of his life there and his formative years. I said, if I'm going to do a recital at Interlochen, it would be immeasurably enhanced to do a piece by Jim Stevenson and especially a premiere of a piece by Jim Stevenson. So that's when I told Jim, if you can have this piece ready in time, this would be an ideal place uh, to make the first performance. And I have to tell you, Jim works great under pressure. He delivers big time under pressure. And in this particular case, we have a masterpiece. I was delighted to give the first performance at Jim's alma mater. And it was an amazing experience. And I've played it several times in international recitals all over South America. And now this recording has been just a great culmination in this project. And I'll have to say, I remember you sent me the recording that you did of the second movement. You did it live broadcast uh, right. from the radio at Interlochen. And Before the first performance. And, yes, it was a I, live broadcast. And I heard it, and I was just like, yep, that's how it goes. It mm. was just perfect. Now, this piece, of course, is dedicated to John and, and everything I know about his playing. And so the third movement, which I called optional, yeah. uh, Jamboree, another pun, if you will, combines modern harmonies with a Baroque sensibility to the movement that's written specifically for E-flat clarinet because I knew that uh, that's one of John's many strengths, and I've heard him play it in the orchestra so many times, and so I wanted to highlight that. So I put optional in there, but I knew you would do it. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't going to turn that opportunity down. We should explain that the E-flat is that little clarinet. The little squeaker, that pie, piccolo, (laughs) yes. Piccolo clarinet which I'm privileged to play in the Chicago Symphony. And uh, I've been digging through my collection of various different recordings that I've made over the years. And I guess I have made E-flat clarinet recordings, a couple of them on CD. I hope we can play that. For example, the Hinnemouth Quintet has a middle movement. The third movement of that has E-flat clarinet in it. Specifically, we're working on a playlist for Spotify in April, the month this album's release, selecting clarinet tracks of John's. And, of course, Easley Blackwood wrote a whole sonata or sonatina for you for the E-flat clarinet. Yep. Should do a whole album of solo E-flat clarinet. Well, that's – I don't know. I think I better draw the line there. I know some of my colleagues have done that. (laughs) But I think that would be a little bit too compartmentalized for me. Well, to conclude this podcast featuring this new CD album entitled Liquid Melancholy, we're going to hear the third movement from the Sonata for Clarinet and Piano from 2015 by Jim Stevenson. It's called Interlude Jam Boré, and it features John Brucier and the pianist is Patrick Godin.
And we've just heard an excerpt from the Sonata for Clarinet and Piano by Jim Stevenson. We heard the third movement entitled Interlude Jamboree for E-flat clarinet, the little clarinet, and Patrick Godin was the pianist with John Bruchier, clarinet. Gentlemen, what makes the Chicago classical music scene unique? And I would imagine we get two different answers from a performer, uh, John Bruchier, clarinet, and a composer, Jim Stevenson. I believe it is CD Records <laughs> that makes the Chicago classical music scene unique. That's the checks in, in the mail. No, no absolutely. <laughs> uh, that is absolutely the yeah, case. That's a, that's a very good answer, actually. It's uh, true. It's it true. is true. And there are other musical communities. There are other musical environments. There are other great musical capitals of the world. I think Sadie Records literally is what makes the Chicago music scene unique. We have competition in all other areas. I appreciate that. I would say there's also a unique environment here that allowed for a Sadie Records, a label specifically devoted to the musicians of the city, to Mm -hmm. come about because it's a city with so much going on musically, and yet it's also a city where the classical record industry has not typically been based, so you didn't have a lot of record labels here for the different wonderful musicians to have their pick. When I started the label back in the late 80s, the only classical music recording activity was the Chicago Symphony Orchestra itself. Mm -hmm. So it ended up being a great platform, and without artists like John Yeh not only playing in the symphony but doing really interesting things as a soloist and creating chamber groups, there would be no basis for a Sadie Records. And I should say, and wonderful composers like Easley Blackwood in their early years and most recently Jim Stevenson. Mm -hmm. It is a wonderful community that is immeasurably enhanced by all of the components that you just mentioned. And Sadie is really one that has brought everybody together. If I could piggyback on you again, it is so rare for us composers to have a label that supports us like this. There are so many labels who they'll contact you and say, we want to record your music. And then they say, and this will cost you, you know, <laughs> this much. And I've never been one of those who wants to pay for my own exposure like that. And so to be to be invited to be part of this and supported in such a way by Sadie is, like I said earlier, I'm just so glad I happened to move to this town. It's so welcoming for new music and in this fashion to literally put on record for future generations to take in. It's definitely a blessing. Gentlemen, wonderful new CD record. You can purchase all CD recordings at cdrecords.org. That's C-E-D-I-L-L-E. And we've been very privileged to speak with John Bruchier, the soloist in this entire album. Thank you for having me. It's been delightful to be here. And the composer, Jim Stevenson. Thank you very much. The producer, the guy who cooks all this up and makes it happen, Jim Ginsberg. And this album was a particular delight to produce. Thanks. And this is Steve Robinson yes. thanking you for listening.